BMG Partners and 1494 2AY presents The Journey Podcast. The stories you're about to hear are true. They shine a light on the events and incidents, known and unknown, that have shaped the lives of the Albury-Wodonga region's most intriguing personalities, local legends and unsung heroes. So sit back and enjoy. All right, this time around on The Journey, I'm joined by Jacob Walke, who a lot of people may know through cycling, uh, being, of course, uh, the owner of Cycle Station, but also maybe you've enjoyed your cafe there at the shop before and, and now m- might know you for Walky Farm as well, which we can talk about. Uh, so first of all, welcome to the journey, Jacob. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kevin. Uh, so let's talk about your ties to the Albury-Wodonga area and the region. Let's talk about your family sort of heritage to the to the zone. Sure. Yeah, well, I was born here um, and my family's background is German. So my grandfather, Klaus Wolke, landed in Adelaide when he was 21, young tradesman, and bustling to get out of uh, you know the country, Germany, which was still in a little bit of repair and seeking adventure and opportunity. He was actually going to head to Canada. And one of his best friends, they were at the wharf, as the story goes, and he said, oh, instead of going to Canada, let's just quickly go to Australia for a year or two, and uh, then we'll go. My grandfather always had this dream about getting one of those... Uh, boats they have in Canada and they sort of hop from weir to weir, you know, yeah. how you can sort of travel the country on water boats. Uh, that's never happened because <laughs> what happens when you go to a new country and find a lady and get married, it, the, the story changes, doesn't it? So he came as a tool maker, did a lot of different things in Adelaide where he landed, so uh, went through a lot of jobs very quickly. I always laugh that my family's unemployable, that's why we do what we do. <laughs> And then he yeah, he had uh, piggeries, he had delis, he had uh, share farming vegetable market gardens, and eventually came to the border here, probably must have been almost 45 years ago, to buy uh, Bird's Nest Barbecue Chicken on Dean Street, which a lot of locals might remember, opposite the cinema, yeah. and had that for decades and decades. And that's what brought us here. My uh, dad and uncles were still in school at the time, and... We sort of had roots ever since. I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. The only time I ever want to leave Aubrey is during spring when the hay fever smacks me. (laughs) I sort of think, what am I doing here? But apart from that, it's the place to be, I think. I think we've got that in common. I'm I'm, I'm going back to Bird's Nest in my mind. Is that where the lounge... um, Uh, Next door. It's uh, what's been there since. You had Fonzie's afterwards and then uh, Cafe Del Cini, Indian restaurants there now. It's going well back in my mind as I think of the little uh, eatery part at the front as you walk into the little stools. Yep, uh, chips and gravy. Jeez. Bags of Parsons nose. Yeah, look, I I walk down the street with my my dad or my Uncle Mark and people still yell out to them, best chips and gravy. And and like that restaurant, uh, well, fast food restaurant has been shut now. It'll be 25 years, yeah. probably, and they, they still get heckled around town. It's hilarious. Yeah, and from there, so you'd mentioned there about um, being unemployable, uh, self-employed, pretty much the whole family, the whole way through. A bit more about your dad and your, your uncle. Yeah, so I've got two uncles. Yeah. Uh, my father had a slew of businesses in town. He had Utah 501 on Dean Street, Card Kingdom, so doing trading basketball cards and mm-hmm. you know all those sort of fanatical collectibles. Uh, the music shop in Central Lavington, and my grandfather and my uncle had a one of my uncles, Shane, had a string of record stores called the Music Shop, also same brand, and they had a, over a dozen of them at one point before the download epidemic wiped everything out. Uh, my uncle Mark has a lawn mowing uh, business that he does a lot of contracting locally for Joss and those guys. So, yeah, look, all my 
all my, uh, I've got a sister and all my cousins in the same generation were all self-employed. Yeah. Every single one of us. Or unemployed. Because <laughs> we're not employable. <laughs> I love it. So um, so let's talk a little bit more about your, your current role. So with Cycle Station. And also, sure. the, we'll touch on that first because let's start there with the whole pandemic. We know cycling's just exploded. Yes. Not just in our region, countrywide and probably globally as well. Australia's sort of coming up to the European sort of respect levels of cycling now, aren't Start, they? Starting to. Like the, I think the uh, enjoyment level is starting to get there we still lack in things uh i think the biggest thing we lack on compared to europe is just mutual respect of road users you know, i i distinctly remember traveling uh germany went with my grandfather and my um, girlfriend who's now my wife Anne, and my cousins and we all went and bailed into a winnebago together to travel around germany and meet the great uncles and everything and i remember riding through a cornfield on our road bikes and we're all in our lycra getting along good sight you know believe yeah. me <laughs> everyone get in front of me and you know, the corn is up high, so it's probably just our helmets showing above the crop. And it's a narrow road, and I heard a car behind me. And first thing, I'm yelling at everyone in front of me to get right off the side of the road to help this car get back. And we're all slowing down, and I'm turning around, and the drivers in this little car are just waving and sort of giving me a bit of a pat, just saying, just chill out, chill out. And they just sat behind us, ticking along, idling along, not trying to overtake for 10 minutes. Mm. And it was just... And when they left, they were giving us a wave and a bit of a toot and just real happy. And that just does not happen here because I, I guess those people might be cyclists, mm. you know, and they just, it's just the culture built around it over there is incredible. You never feel at risk. It's, it's funny because I've had a lot of people that have spent time in Europe say that to me. Just like, they're just like, you know, they're almost like a pedestrian. They've got right of way at all point in time cyclists. Yep. You know, the, the car is Well, that's the, the way inferior. roads normally work, isn't it? Like it, it would be the most vulnerable and at risk trump's right of way so you know mm. you, you don't want to say put a pedestrian on a, on an autobahn but the the person on feet is then um you know the next in line's a cyclist and then it's the motorcyclist and then it's the car and then it's the bus mm. and and you know as as people are vulnerable in society we tend to cut them some cut them some slack you know in that situation but a funny i've had stuff thrown at me on the road here and, and abused and um you know it's not every person obviously we're talking about those unicorn events mm. but i don't uh necessarily ride on the road a whole lot anymore i like mountain biking because uh trees don't swerve and throw packets of macca's chips at you if you hit one it's your fault <laughs> and i've hit a few <laughs> i bet so what let's let's touch on that for a second because it's obviously something very close to your heart what would change the culture is it is it you know cyclists having a license or paying registration or is it is it um simply the drivers having more respect and, and uh, situational awareness look i i don't know to be honest and a lot of people have tried different things i i really think that if we want a, a clean break in the that way we address that respect for road users it starts in school i think the 45 year old truck drivers that think cyclists should get off the road are never going to change their opinion um you know we all i think the older we get the more set in our opinions we become uh, so i think the the place to um the, i think two things in school and when you sit your license like in germany when you sit your license it's a serious affair your parents can't teach you to drive you have to go to a paid instructor it costs thousands of euros to do enough hours with a paid instructor to be able to sit your test which also costs a fortune it's not just a thing that you do with your uncle and then you go pay 150 bucks or whatever it might be i haven't mm -hmm. done it for years and get your license you know it, it there's a lot of uh training and you really have to know your stuff you know there's there's no i didn't know or um, i wasn't told 
sort mm. of scenario. So I think it's just an educational thing, but I think we just have to try again with young people. But we are also a very different market. So many of these European, uh, like, you know, Europe's, when you think about the population density, it's small compared to us in terms mm. of land masses and areas traveled and, and, and its commutability with old cities that were built for walking just go hand in hand with cycling. So it's not comparing apples and apples. Mm. The Rego idea, I think, is horrid because I'm, I'm never going to uh, suggest another new tax <laughs> or paperwork slip that somebody has to has to fill out you know i think every cyclist out there if we had to register and and license and pay that if we were told um you get the uh, funding equivalent you know in same in, in lieu with what the cars get for what they power in rego which we know that rego doesn't pay for roads but that's an argument that likes to get used if we had that sort of funding and it meant that all the uh, angst and bullying on the road went away, we'd all do it. Mm. But it's just a, you know, you don't pay, so you can't play. And if we did pay, it'd just be the next thing. Well, you're still useless on the road, so get off. (laughs) (laughs) I like your views. Now, let's go on to the Walkie Farm side of things. Um, This is a relatively, although having heard now the sort of family history with pigs and food and all the rest, um, this is a relatively new venture, I think, for for you. What's the? Let's explain a bit about that, but also the parallels between that and and maybe bike riding. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, to backtrack a little bit, we purchased uh, Cycle Station, which was called Pushies when we purchased it uh, July first, twenty eleven. So we've just ticked over ten years. And three years into it, we were busting at the seams in the building that we were leasing. So we've purchased the Windsor Park Bowling Club across mm-hmm. the road, um, renovated it, got smeared in the paper a few times because we were hiding elephant remains apparently and all these sorts of crazy stories, which was lots of fun. And when we purpose-built that for our store, we thought, let's put a cafe in it. You know, the, the Lycra latte crowd, uh, we thought it would work. We wanted to lease the cafe out, but nobody would lease it. We had a, we approached a few real estate agents and said, could you represent us? And they all laughed at us and said, awful location. No one's going to put a cafe there and didn't refuse to represent the building uh, on their listings. So just out of necessity, we took it over because my family years ago when Bird's Nest finished said, we're never doing hospitality again. Hours are too big, um, you know, too much cleaning, too fast paced. And we got put into hospitality again. And that cafe... When I've taken over the family farm, I just thought, you know, what a fantastic opportunity. We've got a seven-day-a-week breakfast, lunch, cafe. I can sell myself the produce. We can put it on the plate and start the paddock-to-plate story. And it's it's been working really well. So we've, my family has a 45-hectare farm in Thaguna, which we've had almost 20 years now. And I grew up there, you know, the sort of the last few years I lived at home. And all it ever was to me, really, was paddock bashing. I remember driving around with spider bait, Black Betty, <laughs> screaming in the paddock basher, chucking doughies and just des- destroying dad's pastures. Uh, interestingly, I've just played that song for my son, Otto, and he thinks the lyrics go, wall, Black Betty, baby lamb. <laughs> and we've just got, we've just, we've just dropped lambs on the farm. So he thinks it's the, but can I listen to the baby lamb song, daddy? <laughs> so that's, uh, that's got to be a name of a dish, right? Yeah, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Well, that's how you lose, that's how you turn people vegan, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Using the word baby animal in the title. So the farm, I, in high school, I sat with the careers teacher who was coming around doing the, you know, whatever they do, egging people on to further their education. And what would you like to do? And I don't know how old I was, 13 or 14 or whatever it might be. I said, I think I want to be a vet. Why do you want to be a vet? I said, because I love animals. Great. And I do. I really um, enjoy the pet dogs. And I've always had, I used to breed rabbits when I was in primary school, sell them to canine catfish on Dean Street and all these different things. And I went home and told dad where the careers teacher, dad said, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I'm going to be a vet. 
He said, why? Because I love animals. He goes, oh, so you want to be around sick and dying animals all day, every day? And that just turned me off straight away. (laughs) And I told the careers teacher that and they just thought, you know, typical arrogant retailer who's anti-education. My dad was trying to pull me out of school when I was in year eight to get to work with him. And it's so interesting to me that nobody took what I said I loved, which is being with animals. The only option was vet. No one recommended, why don't you be a farmer? Mm. You know, it's, it's really curious to me that it's not something we'd wish on our kids. Like I feel, I think a lot of farmers are proud when, they're, uh, when their family takes that generational step to extend the legacy. And I think there's a lot that are relieved when they don't, you know, when the, when the son goes to uni and, yeah. and becomes a podiatrist or becomes a lawyer and gets a safe, secure job and gets their super paid and they're not at the whims of um, Mother, Nature. Mother Nature and protesters yeah. and, you know, the, mm. the whole rest of it. So, I, like, in hindsight, that wasn't interesting to me then because I never clicked it all together. But a couple of years ago, it sort of occurred to me that we had this relatively static asset sitting out at the farm because we just set stocked it with a few beef cows, like a small property like that does. Mm. And I thought, let's crank it. And we've been doing that for about two years now. Lots of fun. And um, I'd imagine you're somewhat of a workaholic by the time you do the farming and the cycling and the... <laughs> There's a lot going on. Yeah, I've got a good team. You know, I'm, I'm managing about... Probably, you know, more or less involved in five different businesses on a week-to-week basis. But I've got an incredibly secure uh, management team and I'm not a micromanager. You know, these people have come on board. They understand the vision and the values of the company and I just let them do their job really. So, I'm just the firefighter as as per needed. Most of my energy at the moment is in the, but- is in the butchery and the farm, which are the newest businesses. Mm. So, when you do have spare time... I mean, you said you've crashed into a couple of trees. That's that's probably the, the passion of that business. But what do you do with your spare time? I uh, I don't ride heaps anymore. I've got two boys, Otto's nearly four, and Theodore, who's uh, eight months old. And you know, they're they're conscientiously a big part of my life. Like my dad wasn't around much when I was a kid because he was at working, and there was no um, with the business structure and the and the skill set and the assets of the family. That was the only option, you know, and I really uh, appreciate that dad would have sacrificed himself to do that. The reality is, is where I'm at in my life is different and I want to be a bit more present for my kids, even out of selfish reasons. I just like being around them mm. than my kids. Uh, so, I guess my hobby, when I'm not working, I'm with family because for me, work is enjoyable. It's not like I finish a day in the bike shop or a day in the uh, at the farm and go, I need to go and cast a line now or go to the pub and play cards or something like i don't ever uh feel like i need relief from any of my tasks like i've, I've designed my life it's it's my my day-to-day roster is there by me so i just structure myself so i'm doing things i like and i'm with people i like and yeah downtime's with my wife and my kids good one and so it sounds like you've got the work-life balance thing sorted out one that a lot of people try to find what the secret is to that um have you touched on it there with the fact that you just surround yourself with what you like and what you want to do and that's life? Yes. Yeah, well, you know, there's I I'm a I'm an efficient, effective operator, I think, without trying to puff myself up, but I know <laughs> like if I put my mind to something, I'll knock it over uh, to a decent level relatively quickly. And you know, I've just organized myself. I do a, I do stuff all the time that I don't necessarily want to do to make that the general consensus. 
you know, to, to sort of be in those positions. But also, you know, I've got almost 50 staff across the businesses and I like all of them. Why, why would I want to work with people who I don't like? You know, so I just hire people I like and the ones that I don't like get managed out. And it sounds ruthless, but it's better for the culture of the workplace, isn't it? Well, it gets rid of any nightmares, doesn't it? <laughs> and when, um, you know, when you sort of look at people around you or people have gone before you, and who are people you admire? Who do you admire the most? I've I've never, you know, I get asked all the time, you know, who 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 was your mentor or that sort of thing. And I spent a lot of time with my grandfather Klaus, who's the the patriarch of the family, the German immigrant. Yeah, they my grandparents raised me. You know, I spent more hours with them than I did my parents because my parents were working. And that's I think a, I think that's a bit of a historical truism, isn't it? Like the parents are in the field and the the grandkids are at home with the grandparents. And I think that that's a really, you know, parents are stricter. And grandparents have a bit more wisdom and a bit more leniency and, and indulgent. I think maybe that's important. So I think, you know, a, a, a figure for me in my life would be my grandfather, Klaus. But one of my favorite historical figures is Theodore Roosevelt. I, I love, uh, I've, I've read most of his books and there's a lot of them. And I just love how much that guy crammed into a relatively short life by today's yeah. standards. He was dealt with a really rough health card, um, you know, and just muscled up and got along with it and I named my second son after him I thought it was good enough he can he can aspire to live up to that how he sees fit one of the questions I usually ask is about this time of the journey is about quotes and philosophies and things like that I'm guessing if you've read all the background on Theodore then there's a good chance that you've probably got a few quotes that you might apply as mantras um, yeah well you know my something that I read almost weekly would be the excerpt out of his speech the man in the arena and I, I haven't memorized it, although it's something that I'd like to do, but I don't, probably not disciplined enough to memorize chapters. <laughs> but it basically talks about it's not the critic who counts, it's the men in the, in the arena putting himself at risk. And, um, you know, he mightn't be achieving 100%, but he's achieving something. And the people who criticize him normally aren't achieving anything. And I, just, I love the sentiment because I'm, I'm obsessed with not being a perfectionist. You know, I just want to do the best I can, which probably isn't perfect. One of my favorite, uh, you know, short quotes, which I can precisely quote, is by a farmer in America called Joel Salatin, who I really admire the way he's revolutionized his industry and has done what he's done. And I don't know if it's if it's a, a, a quotable quote, but he said it in a video on YouTube once, and it's always stuck with me. He said, good enough is perfect. Because he was trying to get people motivated to just go and start instead of researching and researching and getting cold feet and needing more help. He said, good enough's perfect because we're dealing with animals, right? Mm. And so I'm not a handy guy. I've never been good at construction or, or building or anything. And as soon as I heard that, I went to the farm with you know a couple of my farm hands and we, we put together a uh, portable chicken coop on an old caravan chassis to haul 350 birds around the pasture and cost us three grand. And you know we did it a project led with my own two hands and it's wonky and rusty and full of holes uh it's good enough therefore it's perfect and that for me was liberating so that's probably my favorite quote it's actually not a bad thing because sometimes we search spend so much effort that's what i guess the, the foundation of it you spend so much effort searching for perfection that you may actually miss attempting anything at all we can't google experience you know you can read exactly like you could read uh pr- precisely and research infinitely how to do the world's biggest and best long jump from all the professionals but if you've never actually done one you're going to be horrid at it you could know it more intimately than anybody else but unless you actually do a few long jumps you're going to have really no idea how to apply that so i'm not 
I'm not advocating negligence, uh, but I think once you can wrap your head around the sentiment behind that quote, uh, you'll know when you're uh, stalling yourself and it's time to just jump in. And it seems like uh, critics, um, other people's opinions, just sort of a couple of the things you've mentioned so far through this conversation. I want to drill in on that a bit. How do you go with haters and, and you know people that might have a differing opinion or view to you? Well, I um, I'm sensitive to it. I you know I'm not I don't have a crowd of people that follow me and 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 shout me down. But the reality is, you know, I've got I've got multiple uh, public businesses. They've all got Facebook pages and Google accounts where we get good reviews and bad reviews. And um, I really hate getting bad reviews because it means on some level, we failed. Like, even if we think the customer didn't understand the experience or misinterpreted, like that's still our fault for not communicating properly, or you know, whatever the situation it might be. So, I really don't like um, the feeling of getting criticism purely because it means I haven't done what I set out to do, which is provide customer service. Basically, that's what all my businesses are set to do. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it's easy to whinge. And it's so I've got a rule that I don't reply to reviews unless I sleep on it. And I always wake up with a fresh uh, perspective. Uh, many thanks to my wife, Anne, who uh, keeps me accountable to that because she's heard me say it a few times. And then she's seen me writing a few responses to reviews. And she's like, that review just came in hot, Jake. Don't you normally say you sleep on these things? Thank you, darling. Off to bed I go. Um, but I think it's easy to sling mud. And um, for, for me, with the amount of, I guess, public stuff I'm involved in, it's important for me to keep in the front of my mind that um, I know what my values are. Um, I know what I've done and how earnest, I guess, what I'm trying to achieve is and to not let that other stuff get to me too much because it does because I want to do a good job. So it's just a balancing act, isn't it? It's uh, refreshing to hear. That's what it is. Um, What do you consider to be your biggest achievement in life so far? Marrying Anne. Yeah, she's a good woman. I've I've said a few times I get I get young guys, uh, normally staff out of the bike shop, teenagers that might want to, they're hustlers, you know, and, and they and they want to get a side job and make a few extra bob and but a uh, few extra bob and do all these sort of jobs and they, oh Jake, can I have a drink with you and you know throw some ideas at you and stuff and they all you know they're sixteen year old kids with heaps of free time and no experience and they want to glean a few things which I'm I'm happy to um, shoot the breeze with them. And they all ask me about priorities. And, you know, they're 16, so I'm trying not to start children getting married. But I said, you know, one of the best things and the most worthwhile thing you'll ever do is marry the best woman you possibly can. I'm normally having conversations with guys, right? That's yeah, just yeah. who hits me up in the workplace. And, you know, I, I a, a wife holds you accountable, makes you better, brings you joy, gives you a family. I can't do any of those things without my wife. So, you know... And is my greatest achievement. That's wonderful. Um, sliding door moments in life. I mean, you're still relatively young. You've followed through a sort of business-orientated family. You've spoken about being the unemployed because you're all self-employed. Um, any any sort of moments in life where that might not have been the case, where you could have maybe not necessarily become a vet but done something different to what you've sort of, I guess, been exposed to or a choice you've had to make? We, uh, we don't plan much, my family. Uh, at large like we're really opportunists you know we, we never set out to uh, get involved in the record industry and bought a CD store because it was a good deal you know and then we never set out to get involved in the bicycle industry we, we just look at opportunities that present themselves and take them so I guess um, s- sliding door moments are, 
are probably frequent as opportunities fall in our laps and and we take them but i don't think that there was uh ever a time where i where i specifically left something to do what i'm doing you know it's always there's always been i guess too much momentum pushing me in this direction Yep, taking the opportunities. Is that yeah. probably the key? Is yeah. If there's, a, is there's an opportunity there, you just take it and see where it goes to. Yeah, I said something to a local businessman one day. He repeated it to me years later saying it made an impact. He was very cool, calm and calculated. It took a long time to make decisions and I was in a huff and a puff and I said, I'd rather make the wrong decision quickly than the right decision slowly. And off I went on my bulldozer uh, of, of you know adrenaline and, and workability for the day. And yeah, stuck with him and I appreciate him reminding me about it years later because I've probably mellowed a little bit mm. but uh, I, I probably you know almost actively sought to try things that I thought wouldn't work because it was fun you know for a young guy to, to, to at least have a crack yeah prove me wrong yeah <laughs> prove me wrong I love it um, tough decisions you've spoken in this journey about um, surrounding yourself with people, managing ones that don't fit in the sphere, mm-hmm. you know, out of the sphere. Has that taken some tough decisions to sort of maintain, I guess, your vision? Yeah, I've had I've had plenty of wretched pits in my stomach over the years and it's you know, it's, it's almost almost a semi frequent occurrence, especially when you're managing, you know, so many different things. Um but I, I don't like just like I don't like negative reviews, I don't like conflicts. Like I don't get excited about sitting down with staff and reprimanding them or performance managing them, you know. Uh, but it needs to be done every now and then, and I won't shy away from it. It's just the reality of the life I've created for myself. But yeah, there's always there's always something. But you know, for me, it's just about knowing what my values are and and what I want my uh, integrity to to feel like to myself and my family, and then just having a cursory overview of you know the meeting I'm about to have and does it does it align with my beliefs like I'm not going to sit down with somebody you know gun at the hip and just go guns are blazing without sort of checking myself I guess and you mentioned um as a teenager thinking you might have wanted to be a vet because you love animals Mm -hmm. if you go a little bit back further the preteen sort of years, a lot of people sort of had aspirations of what they might be, whether it was a firefighter or a truck driver or they might have wanted to be a vet or a doctor or whatever it might have been. But it's very rare you come across someone that's doing what they thought they'd be doing. Yes. What was your childhood dream? What did you think you were destined to be? Oh, I think all the boys in my class in primary school wanted to be commandos. <laughs> you know, we all, we all just wanted to go shoot people up. You know, I can remember running around the school ground with sticks and sniping each other. And I remember distinctly driving on Barella Road, sitting in the back of the car, mum driving. And I was talking about wanting to be a soldier, and mum was trying to hammer into me, you know, how uh, unpleasant and lacking glory it, uh, you know, could potentially be looking back as an adult, mm. you know, because there's nothing um, happy about killing people. Mm. You know, there, there, there's honour about being a service person. I've, I really value people who've, um, you know, protected our freedoms and liberties. But yeah, as a primary school, I just wanted to kill people. It's sensational, <laughs> really, isn't it? <laughs> Do you think um, you're a parent now yourself? Do you think sometimes when we become adults and maybe a bit more experienced or a bit more realistic with the world, um, does it stifle 
our um, innovation a little bit, like you know what we what we should be planning or focusing on. Like as children, life's easy, right? Yeah, I think it. I think it can for. I think it definitely can and does for people uh, stuck in a rat race. You know, commuting an hour to work and you know working a job they don't like for a boss they don't like just to pay the rent on their exorbitant beyond the means property or whatever it is. Mm. Uh, I'm not involved in that. I've I'm conscientiously uh, designing the life. I want to live because it's it's finite, um, and there's you know lots of lots of great things to be to be done, especially with family. So, you know, for me, I think if anything, having having children has made given me clarity and and holds me accountable. Mm. Yep. And with hindsight, we can always make good decisions. <laughs> Somebody should have done this, or should have done that, or could have changed it and done it this way. With the benefit of hindsight, what would you maybe tell a younger you? There's a... Uh, I haven't sacked a staff member for s- seven years. I read a book years ago called Fire Someone Today. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's a management. It's one of these self-help management books. Mm-hmm. And since I read that book, Fire Someone Today, I've never sacked a single person because it talks about if you're unhappy with them, they're probably unhappy with you and manage the situation, have a conversation, give them the freedom to leave, you know, all these sorts of principles. And I wish I got my hands on that years earlier and I wish I sacked a heap of staff way quicker than I did in those first three years. You know, I, 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 there's a slew of regrets. And something, a pet peeve for me actually, Kevin, is when people say, I don't have any regrets. Because t- t- to me, that means that they haven't learned from those situations. You know, and I understand we're playing with semantics because the reason people say they don't have regrets is because they've learned from them. But I think if it was truly a negative thing, you couldn't have learned from it unless you regret it happening. Mm. You know? And on the regrets, if you don't have regrets, does it mean you haven't had a crack? Maybe. Yep. <laughs> well, you just look at the amount of um, just talking purely about, um, you know, net worth, net worth and equity. You know, the, the top 1% that we love to, re- to refer to in society is constantly revolving. The, the, the people who... You know, the 1%, what is it? It's like 80% of the 1% are there for less than a year because they, they, they sell a business and then they blow all the money or they get rich and go bankrupt or have a good trade deal on the stock market and then blow it all on crypto or vice versa, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, it's definitely worth <laughs> having a crack, I think. <laughs> uh, let's think ahead for a bit. Uh, so, you know, the part of your story that's yet to be written, another five or 10 years from now. Yep. What's in I'm, it? I'm really stuck on this farming thing. It's it's you know the the bike shop, uh, the cafe. We we run a, a website for our bicycle business, which is a standalone sort of operation. All of these things are lots of fun. I really enjoy them. I've worked like a bull at a gate for them for for you know the better part of a decade. But the farm for me is something that really ticks off. Uh, there's there's an, there's a personal like agenda framework around it, and there's really uh, values and and uh, meaningful change I'd like to see in you know systems and, and perceptions around it. So that's definitely where I see the next few years of my life going. I believe animals should be treated better in primary production. Like I'm a, I'm a producer, so we have on our farm we produce beef, pork, lamb, eggs chicken meat honey we've got market gardens we've got orchards uh we've got goats um you know we're 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 a very diversified productive farm so i'm not 
um, advocating for animals to the extent that we shouldn't eat them. I, be, you know, believe there's a there's a role there for them in society. But I definitely think that we we should stop abusing and sinning against these animals with the you know the factory farming and the feedlots and the multi-story pig factories and the soaking their food in antibiotics so we can overly crowd them in in you know factories for our better return. Uh, so you know, animal animal welfare is something that I'm really passionate about and i i see that i guess uh helping other producers that are like-minded to me because i'm not alone in this but helping them uh pave a way and showcase that there's a, a profitable alternative to cruel farming mm. is something that i'm really turned on by at the moment that's good um are you thinking about your future plans and you, you're sort of saying that the farming thing you're hooked on it sounds like you'd, you'd probably think you're on track to achieving what you want to there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. Look, you know, the our our little stacked enterprise farm with all the different animals, which is you know a bit over two years old. It's a it's a productive, profitable farm run under management. I don't. I'm not uh, required to be on the tools. You know, it's it's a it's a farm that has staff and it ticks along and it's doing a good job. Uh, you know, I want to expand that. The 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 customers. Uh, which are being attracted to the farm are very rapidly uh, being organized into a beautiful little community of share valued people and I'm really enjoying servicing the community that I'm attracting um, so yeah the the I guess the the vision is just is just to grow it and to vertically in, integrate more of the supply chain so at the moment we you know we raise our animals on the farm we process them in our own butchery um, we we serve a lot of it through our um, cafe and we also sell a lot of it direct through online orders and the butchery, that sort of thing. But there's a missing link and for me, that's the abattoir in the whole process. So I'd love to uh, yeah, achieve to bring that into my own verti vertical integration just so I have more control over what happens there and it can happen the way I want it. You know, I send my animals off to abattoirs and once... They're on the truck. You know, I, I go to great pains to do everything right up until that point. And, you know, we talk about that last day of their life being their one bad day. We want them to, if they're a six-month-old animal, we want them to have 180 great days and one bad, we understand it's going to be a bad day, but I think that we can do better. So that's, you know, the final sort of piece of the puzzle, I think, for us. But just expansion and helping helping buddying farmers. I'm, I'm getting contacted all the time from young people who want to get into farming and do things similar to the way we're doing in this little regenerative agriculture space and anything that I can offer them with uh, experience and lessons from failures um, and, you know, contacts, um, su supply of goods, whatever I can give them. I'm, I'm really passionate about helping them get a leg up. Farming is an interesting, you know, kettle to boil in Australia because the, the cost of land is huge and the, the property is vast and the way we farm it being, you know, you're either a sheep farmer or a, or a wheat farmer or a cow farmer, you know, it's very specialist. You need a lot of land mm. to make those farms happen. So when the land comes up for sale, you know, someone in my position with with my businesses and uh, where I am at in life, if I wanted to get into farming and go buy a thousand acres up at Holbrook, there's no way I could afford it, mm. you know, and, and I'm not a minimum wage earner mm. um, as, a, as a 30 year old family man with a wife that works that'd be completely beyond our means so who buys it it's the big farmer next door and the big farms get bigger and the average age of farmer is rising 
you know, a, a healthy industry, they reckon that the average age should be low 30s. And in Australia, um, the average age of farmers is encroaching on 70, the capital holders, mm. um, for a multitude of different reasons. And it's not anybody's fault necessarily, but the way we like to encourage new people to do things is um, through low startup. So, like I said, we built our chicken shed for $3,000. You can buy them new custom-made flat-packed out of China and they're twenty five grand for essentially a, a, a schmicker-looking thing, mm. uh, but it achieves the same thing and good enough is perfect for the chickens, right? So, leasing land, um, being smart with your purchasing decisions, uh, marketing direct to consumers so you don't have to wholesale to Coles. Why don't you go to the farmer's market, sell direct to the customer? Uh, helping people get that up off the ground is really exciting for me. So, that's more of that to be repeated in the future, hopefully. Good to hear. I know we're all sort of sick of talking about it, but let's let's face it, we're living in a moment in history with COVID. Can we touch on that for a little while? Sure. Um, what's it taught you? Well, you know, it, it... You know, something, I guess, that's a little bit morbid out of it is it doesn't matter. Um, you can make all the right decisions. You can run your business the right way and someone can still push stop on you. You know, like we... I've got, I've got 50 staff and I pay everybody properly. And um, you know, I, I look after everyone, and we're extremely generous with our with our community and our uh, customer service, and all these things that we do, which I could go into detail about. But it's, you know, it's not the point. The we could do everything right and try really hard, and then something happens, and you know, government says you can't open because we're trying to protect people. And it's just an interesting like to have somebody else pull the handbrake on you, can't do anything about it, is an interesting uh, exercise to go through, to say the least. And I'm not bitter about it. You know, it, it is what it is, and our forefathers have had bigger handbrakes pulled on, you know, like bombs dropping on the city, famine, um, d- disease outbreaks that caused, you know, massive, you know, Spanish flu type events that mm. got out of hand and they didn't know how to, you know, pr- stop it from rolling. Um, yeah, but I, I guess it's probably made me uh, let go a little bit, and it, it's it's probably, uh, it, and it might go hand in hand with a bit of a coming of age thing, but it's... It's toning down my, uh, you know, hunger for liability slightly because cash in the bank, you know, there's different ways of running a business, right? And some people like every dollar out there working for them. And, you know, I know, I know farm, I know not farmers, I know business people that that don't have a cent to their bank account because they want it all out working. It's either in stocks or, you know, in a lease, uh, you know, whatever it might be. And then others, I've met business owners that wouldn't buy, they wouldn't increase their stock level $1 unless they could pay that $1 and have a dollar in the bank account to guarantee it, you know? So if they had $10 in the bank, cash, not owned to anyone, they'd increase stock $5 or invest it wherever it needed to be. Very different ways of doing it. And I've always had all my money working for me. And now I like the idea of having a little bit of money there uh, for a rainy day because somebody else might make a decision that impacts you. You know, I didn't drop the ball on anything, hmm. but it's still beyond me. Have your values changed? Maybe for the better? Do you think? No. Still no, the same I, values? Yeah, I don't think. You know, I've I've been tested as to how much do your like how can you follow through? I always get online and say we like to look after our staff. You know, it, it, it's not my first interview, and um, that's a really confronting thing to say when you've got staff that have quit and don't think you looked after them. You know, I'm sort of putting myself out there for people to fact check me. Um, but, you know, I, like I've said earlier, I know where so I come from with these things. But when you're, when you're looking at your business being uh, shut down and you've got uh, 50 people, 
20 plus who are full time and you're having meetings with them trying to figure out if I close, how much do you need so that you don't forfeit your mortgage and that you can keep food on the table and how long can I pay that to you before I go bust? And you know, that was a, it's, it's one thing to say that you do the right thing by your people, but then to be put in a position where you've got to sit down with them. And like I sat down very early on in COVID and uh, with all my staff one by one that I had obligations to as full-timers and, um, and, and some of the casuals that are, that a casual would have been with the business long time. Like I didn't, they didn't sweat too much the 16-year-olds that live at home, right? You, yeah. know, you know, they've got their parents for them. But the people that rely on me, I sat down with all of them and, you know, okay, you earn um, $1,200 a week. How much do you need? And maybe it was 400 right? Yeah, so I put 400 towards the budget and, and very quickly worked out um, how long, if I got turned off, I could keep everybody going and, and committed to it, in you know, internally. And so probably didn't, probably didn't uh, learn any values, but the values got tested. Hmm. Yeah, it's one thing to say it, isn't it? Yeah. But I didn't have to do it still, so I could all be talk still. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you had to pivot? Yeah, big time. Yeah, massively. The cafe got shut down, like no, uh, no dining. The bike shop was allowed to operate, um, you know, with masks and distancing and and the rest of it. We, we've we've weathered the storm a lot better than the you know Metro Victorian counterparts in that regards. But having to the cafe got absolutely smashed by not accepting dinings. We run eighty. 80 seats as dining which are you know the cafe does a few seatings a day so it's pretty busy so uh making and i've got the production coming off the farm which is regimented so not only did i not have the outlet to sell the produce but the farm needs the cash flow so it's consistently processing animals which the butchery needs to put through so the vertical integration things are romantic but comes with its own headaches because you're very exposed to these sorts of up and downs but yeah making um take home meals that we're doing deliveries and produce boxes and um a lot of different ways of running the businesses all around, which are interestingly uh, things we're still doing. The take-home meals a year later, they become great little enterprises. We're wholesaling them to local IGAs and they're you know, doing a few hundred bucks a week, which is all just great, keeps everything busy. Mm-hmm. There's been some real uh, gems that have come out of it, gems in our production. And um, what surprised you about a pandemic? Being alive in a pandemic, a moment in history, as mentioned before, Spanish flus and all the different Great Depressions and things like that. But what what surprised you to be sitting here? I, I sat down. I had two hospitality counterparts, so locals. I won't throw them under the bus, but locals who own restaurants. And right at the start, before anyone knew what was happening, they were just starting to talk about COVID, getting out of China and stuff. We sat down and to try and just put our heads together and figure out what was actually going to happen in our industry, being the restaurant industry. And one of them said, oh, they're going to shut us down. We're not going to be allowed to seat people. Uh, we're going to have to close the doors. They won't want takeaway coffee because it'll be COVID on the cup, getting handed out and all this stuff. And I remember, this is a year and a half ago, I remember looking him dead in the eyes and saying, there is no way that the community would tolerate being shut down for a single week. And I was, I was 100% believed that. And I thought it doesn't matter how good the science is. It doesn't matter how genuine the reason is. There is no way people would tolerate it. And year and a half later, they flick the switch and we sit on our couch. And that's not a, I'm not criticizing anything. You know, this no, is no. like we spoke in the lobby. This is all way beyond me. Um, I just like observing things. And I did not think that the, the world would um, take it as well as we have. We've done a good job at doing what we're told, haven't we? Considering we've lived a fairly sheltered Western life where everything's achievable overnight. And- almost, almost, yeah. almost all of us have never experienced anything 
really like we've got grandparents and great grandparents and you know Tell us. and yeah. and there might be the odd service person that's gone over to the middle east and, and really seen stuff but you know people like me been to bali a few times having a party on the beach you know <laughs> like we haven't we haven't um, gone through anything and i just didn't think we'd put up with it but we have yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll work our way towards the wrap-up of this journey uh, jacob Walk, you're really happy to have you here and we can probably sit and talk for hours um an oldie but a goodie you have three people over for dinner alive or dead um for a dinner party who would they be mm, three people radio well let's go theodore roosevelt he's popped up a few times and i think he would be an absolute hoot uh not to flog the same oh he's, he's later though i guess winston churchill I know he can eat and drink, and I, I think he'd be happy to speak his mind. And number three, Donald Trump, just to keep it spicy. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny though? They're all politicians, and I'm not the biggest fan in the world of uh, bureaucratic systems. Yeah, 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 interesting. Maybe that would be the challenging part. Maybe you'd be prepared Maybe, to well, sit there and challenge. I don't, I don't seek comfort. So, yeah, maybe. Uh, sweet or savoury? Oh, both. <laughs> yeah, both. Oh, I've got a, I've definitely got a sweet tooth, yeah. 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 But just food in general is great to me. And as we put this uh, particular journey together, we've got a lockdown in Victoria at the moment, so it's limiting some of the people yes. um, on the New South Wales side of the border as well. Obviously, things that are available as options, but what are your plans for the weekend? Uh, this weekend, I am. I think my wife's working a shift at the cafe, so I've got both the boys. You know, Theodore, eight months and he's um, still feeding, so I've got to juggle that with him. <laughs> and when I've got the boys, we're out at the farm doing uh, doing chores because that's what we love to do. We'll go start a little fire and um, check on the lambs and collect the eggs and yeah, chill out at the farm probably this weekend doing some jobs while mummy wins the bread. <laughs> Good one. Well, Jacob Walkie, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks part for of the journey and, and we will cross paths again, I have no doubt. Thanks for listening to The Journey. At BMG Partners, they enable people to achieve their dreams. If listening to this conversation got you thinking about your journey and whether you're on track, they'd love to hear from you. Head to bmgpartners.com.au. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.